So today we chant in the Adita Padiyaya Sutta, also known as the Fire Sermon. It's a very powerful sutta. It's another one of those suttas. Remember the Dhammachakapavattana Sutta, the first discourse the Buddha gave to a specific audience. And so how I said that really the middle way is, is is not something the Buddha taught quite often, even though we always point to it as being central to the Buddha's teaching. It was actually taught seems to have been taught specifically for the audience because the five monks were torturing themselves. And so the Buddha taught them that that was also an extreme. Because the core of the sutta is not about the middle way, it's about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path, which the Buddha says is the middle way. But there's nothing clear about it that this is somehow the middle way. He's just pointing out the fact that torturing yourself is also not the way. So the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, actually, um, the theme of it is much more. In in this case, even though it is directed to a specific group, the idea of everything being on fire is very much uh, core to the Buddha's teaching. It's just that the simile that the Buddha uses has a specific purpose. Of course, the middle way is also very clearly. Buddhist teaching. It's not that it's not, but uh, just pointing out that these were given for specific reasons. The fire sermon was given because the Buddha, after he became enlightened and after he taught the Dhammachakapavattana Sutta and then the Anattalakana Sutta and then managed to gather together 60 Arahant disciples over the course of the three months of the rains, 2,000 600 and some odd years ago he told the monks to wander this is this famous uh, discourse where the Buddha told the monks to wander for the good of the many and he said I'm going to Gaya I believe is what he said anyway that's where he went Gaya is um sort of south of Rajagaha which according to the, the tradition I'm not sure which tradition but what I've heard which makes sense is that this uh, well it's actually quite clear from the text the Buddha was intending to go to Rajagaha but he had to think carefully about how he was going to approach this um this idea of teaching. So he he had wandered all the way from from Gaia. Uh, that's right. No, he didn't say he was going to Gaia. He said he's going to Uruvela. And this is part of the story. So he he wandered all the way from Gaia, Bodh Gaya, which is south of Gaia, to Varanasi. Right. We have the last one, Varanasi, Yang Vihalati, Sipatani, the last two suttas just to teach the five ascetics 
because they were the best he could think of to quickly understand his teachings. You know, they were familiar with him, and he'd be able to teach them without much difficulty. But then, as they say, he realized that Varanasi was a bad choice to spread the teaching or to settle down in because it was too strong. Um, there, there was a strong Brahmin tradition there. And I believe it was part of... Uh, I don't know. It was... Uh, there, was too, there would have been too much resistance. This is what we're told. And so the Buddha wandered all the way back to Rajagaha, or near Rajagaha, Uruvela, with the intention of going to Rajagaha, but he, he went to Uruvela first, because in Uruvela there existed a great uh, ascetic, three great ascetics actually. One was the leader and his two younger brothers. So they were they were brothers. And the eldest had 500 ascetic followers and the next younger one had 300 and the third, the youngest one had 200. Altogether they had a thousand there were a thousand and three uh, ascetics and they were fire worshippers and they were held in high esteem by the people of Rajagaha. So the Buddha with his in vast understanding and, and wisdom realized that the best way to spread the teaching to the people to the, the ordinary people would be to first convert or to wake up let's say, we won't talk about converting but wake up these three guys who thought they were arahants and so there's a long story that precedes this sutta where the Buddha goes to Uruvela many of you know this story he goes to Uruvela <coughs> And he goes and asks Uruvela Kasapa, the eldest one. They're, they're all called Kasapa. Oh, there's Uruvela Kasapa, and then there's Nadi Kasapa, and then there's uh, Gaya Kasapa, is the third one? Okay. No, Gaya, no. Gaya Kasapa, because he's in Gaya. And so he goes. He goes to Uruvela Kasapa, and he says, "Can I stay? Can I stay here for some time? You know, kind of innocent, like right, like." No, I'm not an uh, I'm not an omniscient Buddha. I just happened to be in the neighborhood, wondering if I could hang out for a night or two. He's so like this. The Buddha would just innocently walk up and say, "Could I stay here for the night?" And then, like, could you imagine no, the, the Buddha coming to your door and saying, "Excuse me, could I stay here for the night?" What did he do? He was he was kind of worried because. He realized that this guy was some, you know, you, you can't help but get a feeling for the Buddha's presence. And he thought, oh, oh here's someone who could potentially get in our way and um, cause us to uh, lose some of our fame. You know, if, if people got a, found out that there was another recluse who, I mean, he's not an arahant like me, but he might be somehow have some special powers or something. So he said, well, we don't have any goodies, but we don't have any rooms for you, but you're welcome to stay in the in the fire hall, right? the, hall the place where they... Uh, I, I'm going to get this wrong because I can't remember the exact details. He says something like, you can stay there, but there's a... 
there's a big snake. There's a naga, a, a dragon. There's a dragon living there. Right? And so the story goes, and you kind of, you know, you kind of wonder whether this all happened, but we'll just, you know, this is the thing about Buddhism, I have to say, because I know people always, some people cringe at these kind of stories because they say, how can you believe that stuff? And the point is that it, you believe in it in the sense that you believe in 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 Australia, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It doesn't change the the truth. So it could be real. You know, I don't. It doesn't change my life if Australia doesn't exist, or if like Pluto doesn't exist, or you know. Um, so it's not. This isn't. This is a difference. There's a difference here. So people say, how can Buddhism? espouse blind faith well because we don't really care you know we don't care enough to disbelieve it it's not important enough it was if it was important we'd we'd investigate it until we were sure but I, it doesn't matter to me whether there was a dragon in this or whether dragons really exist or not in fact we tend to believe that they do but it doesn't matter for the truth of buddhism whether they do or not it's just something that people who we believe to be wise have told us exists so we say okay just like someone went to Australia and told us Australia exists. Doesn't mean anything to me. It's kind of an interesting thought. So, if you don't believe these, just keep that in mind, that it's not really important. Think of it as just a story. But the... So, Naga, no? This dragon. And he went into the... And the, the Buddha said something like... I'm going to get this wrong, so I'll just say it's something like... The Buddha said, Oh, don't worry, I'll be okay. Because he said, there's a dragon in there, and, and I, I worry for your safety. And he said, oh, that's fine. I'll stay there. And so he goes in, and the Naga comes up and tries to uh, burst into flame you know, and, and, and shoots fire out at, at the Buddha. And the Buddha shoots fire out at the Naga and, and, and causes the Naga to... And he blows smoke or something like that. And Naga blows smoke, and then the Buddha blows smoke. And in the end, the, the point being, in the end, the Buddha, uh, through his magical powers, he he subdues the, the dragon, and actually manages to get the dragon in his alms bowl. I'm not supposed to tell that part. In the morning, he comes out and and and. Uh, they they saw the fire and the fireworks going on in this fire hall. And they say, "Oh, he's going to be he's going to be hurt by the snake." In the morning, the Buddha comes out and and he says, "Oh, did you sleep well? Hope you hope your sleep wasn't bothered by the snake." And he said, "Oh, that 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 dragon. Well, he's here in my alms bowl." And uh, Uruvela Kasapa says, "Oh, this Samana Gotama is is has great power." But he's not an arahant like me. And so this goes on for... The story goes on for days. You know, The story goes on, spans several days, where the Buddha does a great number of miraculous things. A lot of fun to read. And every time, uh, Uruveda Kasupa says, Well, he's a great... He's, he has great power, but he's not an arahant like me. And the Buddha said, Look, I could stay here for... He realized I could stay here for 500 what a five hundred! No, I could stay here for for the rest of my life, and 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 Uruvela Kasaba would never uh, accept the the fact that he's not an arahant. So he said, "I have to have to say this to him." So it goes up to him and says, "Look, you're not an arahant. 
you're not on the path that leads to, to, to become an arahant. Give it up. And so he does give it up. And he goes to his followers and he says, Look, I've decided, you can all do what you want, but I've decided I'm going to follow the this recluse Gotama, the Samana Gotama. What do you all think of that? And they're all like, you know, we, we, we've we been sitting here watching these miracles and we were only, the only thing we were waiting for is for you to get off your stubborn butt and and accept the Samana Gotama. We were ready from the very beginning to accept this. This guy's way beyond us. And so they all shaved off their matted hair and all took all their religious articles and threw them in the river and let them float down, float away down the river. And they became bhikkhus. All 501 of them. And so the, the, his brother down the down the river saw these some of these articles, religious articles, floating down the river and all the hair in the river and so on. And he thought, whoa, something crazy has gone on. So he went with his followers up to, or he went up to Uruveda Kasapa's dwelling. Nadi Kasapa was along the river, and he went up to Uruveda and, and found out that Uruveda had converted, and so these other 300 monks, 301 ascetics also converted, and then finally, same thing happened with the youngest brother. So this is how the story goes. But the I guess the the only point that's useful to us is the fact that they were fire worshippers. If you want to cut to the chase, they were fire worshippers. And so the Buddha went to Gaya um, from Uruveda. He went to the down the river to the second worshipper, and then he finally went to Uruveda uh, to Gaya, where the third brother was staying, and went up on top of Gaya Sisa. I don't know. Has anyone ever found out where Gaya Sisa is? It's a, I guess it's a mountain in Gaia, right? Because we went, we went through Gaia, and I was looking at all the mountains. I was saying, I wonder if that's it. I wonder if that's it. We went to the Dunga, uh, the Dunkashwari, Dunkasiri, uh, where the Buddha did the Dukkha That's up on a mountain. But I don't know where Gaia Sisa is. I don't know if anyone's ever found out where it is. Because it's up on a mountain, I think. I think that's the point of what Gaia Sisa is. Sisa means head. And so this is why the Buddha taught this sutta in with this, uh, using the simile. Because, of course, fire would have been on their minds quite uh, often. And so the Buddha said, you want to know the truth about fire? Sabbang bhikkave aditam. Everything is on fire. All is aflame. And this sutta is, all three of these suttas, these are called the three cardinal discourses of the Buddha, and it's because they're so core and so well uh, suited, or no, so all-encompassing, and they fit very well together. See, the first one is the Four Noble Truths, the second one is the Five Aggregates, the third one is the Six Senses. What more do you need than that? It really gives you everything. The five aggregates are reality. You, know? you have rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vijnana. This is the the aspects of experience. You know, that that which makes up experience. 
how it's experienced is through the six senses. So these two together really provide a complete framework of a Buddhist understanding of reality. Meaning, that's what's going on right here and right now. And so this, these are incredibly powerful meditation techniques, meditation teachings. They're not meant to be theoretical. You're not meant to think about this. Is the eye on fire? Or you're not meant to say, yeah, wow, I really agree with it. No, you're meant to be practicing this as it's being taught. So we say the eye is on fire. Well, what is it on fire with? It's on fire with passion, hatred, and delusion. So there's nothing wrong with the eye if it weren't on fire. There's nothing wrong with seeing beautiful things or seeing ugly things if there weren't the passion, if there weren't the desire, if there weren't the anger, the hatred, if there weren't the delusion, the ego, the identification, me, mine, I. If these things weren't there, or even if they were there and there wasn't birth, old age, sickness, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, if these things didn't lead to suffering, then there would be no problem, right? If the, if the eye were not on fire with ragaggi, dosaggi, mohaggi, jati, jara, maranena, marana, soka, parideva, dukkha, domanasa, upayasa. If it didn't have all of these things in... in they're not intrinsic. But if, if we could overcome these things, then there'd be no problem with the eye. Actually, you, you can't quite say that. If there were no uh, greed, anger, and delusion. But you see, even then, the eye, the reason why we have to, why we should give up our attachment to the eye and the ear and the nose and the tongue and the body and the mind is because they are not only on fire with defilements, no, they're intrinsically. So, okay, let's put it this way. The first three are extrinsic, but the last ones are intrinsic. You can't have the eye without birth, old age, death, uh, at least those ones anyway. Some of the intrinsic ones, meaning the eye will not last forever. Sights will not last forever. Or they're not stable. They're not permanent. They're not lasting. They're not controllable. Because they're based on the five aggregates. You have the rupa, which is the eye and the forms. And then you have the sanya sankara, the, the sanya. No, you have the vinyana, which is eye consciousness. And then you have the vedana. Anyway, you have all five aggregates in there. The other four are the, are the nama, the mind, vedana, sanya, sankara, vijnana, that's all nama. And all of these things, as we learned in the last sutta, are anicang, rupang bhikkave, nichang va, anichang va, his form permanent or impermanent. This is the Buddha doing reporting. And they say, Anichang Bhante, their form is impermanent. And if it's per impermanent, then is it suffering or happiness? Well, then it's suffering or unsatisfying.
If it's unsatisfying, then can you really say, should you really say that it's me, it's mine, this I am? No, he tang bante. No, indeed, venerable sir. So because we already learned that in the last sutta, it's easy for us to understand what the Buddha is talking about here, giving up our attachment to these things, and how attachment to these things lead to suffering. Why? Because you can't predict. They're unpredictable. And then, so in the next in the in the next section, we get to the response that we're aiming for through our examination of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the heart. Form, sound, sight, sounds, smells, tastes, feelings, and thoughts, and the vedana, the feelings that arise based on the six senses. The response that we're we're hoping to or we're aiming for is something called nibida, which I think I've talked about recently. Nibida means giving up our attachments or having done away with our desire for these things. So the key in Buddhism is not to reject anything, even not even to reject, or certainly not to reject experience. This, we talk about escape from suffering. And so people always misunderstand that to mean running away. Absolutely not. There's, there is no way to escape, as we learned in the Dhammapada last night. There's no way to escape suffering by running away. You can go up on top of a mountain or under the ocean. You can never escape suffering, not by running away. And it doesn't come from rejecting, it doesn't come from repressing, it doesn't come from fighting. It comes from getting bored of it. As we learned, atanibindati duke, when one becomes bored of suffering, this is the path of purification. So here the Buddha is bringing up this nibindati. So we learn that nibinda is actually is a very core concept of Buddhism, and it's it's the key knowledge that arises, one just gets fed up with it, has enough, and says, you know, really it's not worth it. So you see that how different this is from repressing and from rejecting anything. It's it's actually brilliant. I mean, this is one of the, the most inspiring aspects of Buddhism is that you just l learn, you realize that the truth is these, all these things that you're addicted to are actually not bringing you suffering. The fact that this is possible has so been overlooked, or has never been even found, has never never come close to being found by, by uh, science, by addiction therapists, and so on. The realization that you can... Well, I suppose, I suppose there probably has been some, some research done on this, that they can see that when a person does ha has had enough with their addiction... They, give, they can give it up, but the idea that you can train yourself to become, no, not train yourself, but investigate on your own all of your addictions, all of your attachments, and become bored of them. Realize that they're useless, realize that they're meaningless. 
not not like brainwashing you or, or accepting some kind of dogma, but that actually, deep down, the truth sets you free. The truth of the addiction. You don't have to avoid it. You don't have to run away from it. You see, this is what they would probably uh, advise. Stay away from it. You don't have to. You might want to stay back from it while you learn about it from a distance, but you certainly don't want to reject it. Because when you reject it, you'll never learn anything. You can never learn about it, right? So we have to experience these things in, in, in measured doses so that we can understand them. And when we, under, when we understand, this is the, the Buddhist theory, the Buddhist claim, when we understand things perfectly, we will become bored of them. We will have no reason whatsoever to cling to them, to want for them, to crave for them, or to get angry and upset about them, or to cling to them as me, mine, I, to become egotistical or, or arrogant or, or, or so on, conceited. We would never, never, never think to give rise to such a thing. This is the power of wisdom, the power of understanding, and this is what we're aiming, aiming for. This is what you should see in your practice. If you're, if you are practicing correctly, this is what you will see. So, one interesting thing that someone pointed out to me was that if you practice meditation, how do you know that you're not just getting caught up in subjectivity? How do you know that what you're experiencing is correct? This is the charge leveled at religious experience in general. And it's a perfectly valid um, charge, one that we have to take quite seriously. We have to understand that we may very well be deluding ourselves. right? And so what we should see, how we judge that we are getting closer to a clear understanding of reality, is that we become less passionate, we become less attached, less partial. We become more clear-minded, we become more peaceful, we become less agitated, less upset, less easily upset, and so on. If we're still able to be affected by things, if we're still partial and judgmental and, and we project and we identify with things, then you can say that you're still subjective in your experience. But when you come to be disenchanted and, and unattached to things, then without doubt you've come to see things closer to as they really are. It's, it, it just is a, it's the definition of seeing things as they are. Objective is seeing things simply as they are. So the point being, you the, the reason why you can you can dis disregard this this charge, or you can avoid this charge of of being subjective in in your experience. How you can overcome the the, the problem of being subjective is to stick with what is truly objective and reject the existence of anything outside of experiential reality. So outside of the six senses, we say there's nothing. Or outside of the experience surrounding the six senses, you know, the feelings that arise, the, um, or the aspects of the experience. Apart from that, there's nothing. There is no self, no soul, and so on. So one thing I wanted to talk about tonight, uh, just briefly, because I've been talking a lot already, that's basically this, this sutta, no, there's not much else there, is about what Buddhists believe. And this is a perfect segue into that. This is 
this sutta highlights what uh, highlights the the idea of what Buddhists believe and 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 much more importantly what Buddhists don't believe. There was a really uh, funny talk. I think it's on the internet. Probably many people have heard it by Kesi Damananda, the late great monk, Sri Lankan monk living in Malaysia. And he wrote a book called What Buddhists Believe. And so he's giving this talk and he said, I was, inter I, was, I was interviewed about this book, What Buddhists Believe. And this man said, this, the interviewer said, so, what, tell, so tell me then, what do Buddhists believe? And he said, absolutely nothing. And the man said, well, then why did you write that book? That's exactly why I wrote that book. <laughs> I think it's, it's an incredible, incredibly powerful statement. It may not be completely true. As I said, we do believe some things. But we believe them in the sense that I'm too lazy to find out the answer. Or we believe them in the sense that, well, okay. Eh, I don't even, wouldn't even go that far. If, if it's important, then we, we don't pay much. We, we try our best and in fact it won't help you the belief won't help you you can have a hypothesis but if you believe in something it will only cover your ability to investigate it so we should even re we should we can believe in the beginning when it's inconvenient to practice but you know like you believe in karma for example okay I, I haven't understood karma for myself so I believe in it because I trust these people who say that if you do bad deeds bad things are going to happen to you but it's totally useless in terms of becoming enlightened. It's useful on a on a, a mundane level. You know, if you don't kill people, you'll have a better future, for example. If you don't get angry, you'll have a better future, even if you don't realize that getting angry is, is, is destroying you, for example, etc., etc. But it won't help you become enlightened. But we do believe some things. Um, but all, no, I guess that's the point. Is all the things that we believe and that we would even hold on to throughout our lives and never care to find the truth out about is those things that don't matter, or those things like with all people, we we live our lives taking for granted that things like microphones work. I I take for granted that this microphone works. I don't have a clue how it works. I guess I do have some clue, but it, I don't need a clue. I just know I trust that this microphone is going to work. I trust that that amplifier is going to work. I trust many things. I go through through my life without knowing a great many things. And all of the things in Buddhism that we believe before people level this charge at us are, are things that are not important. Yeah, I can believe in angels and gods. What I was going to say that we don't believe in is we don't believe in a god. And we don't we don't believe in, in, in gods, period. No, we, in in one sense. And I think this is important. Because it's an interesting fact that what a theist will say, someone who believes in God, will say, you can't disprove God, the existence of God. And in fact, we can and do. This is quite interesting because scientists say, well, yeah, but you can't disprove a teapot f orbiting around Saturn or something like that. We can disprove that as well. How can you disprove God? You can disprove God because he's not in a category of things that could exist. You see? God doesn't exist any more than I exist. 
because you can't experience God, you can't experience I, any more than this microphone exists. I can't experience this microphone. All I can experience is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. You could never experience God. You could never, God could never in, enter into the realm of experience. If you saw God, that's seeing. That's all it is. It's not God. You see, if you heard God, that's only hearing. If you smelled or tasted or felt or thought about God, those are only the senses. That's all you've got is experience. So with one fell swoop, swipe, we've destroyed theism. What's next? Chance. We don't believe in chance. We believe everything. Uh, we, 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 we disregard the fact that we disbelieve in the fact that um, something could happen without a reason. So I guess you could say we believe in cause and effect. But it's not a belief, because this is the core of our practice, to understand cause and effect, to understand how things work. So we look at how things work, and we see them working in a quite orderly fashion. And so we disregard the belief that something could happen by chance. And, and maybe that's a shaky one, I'm not sure. I've, I've heard that it... I've never heard this some some view on whether chance could possibly exist and I guess we'd have to leave open the possibility at least because I'm not I haven't thought much about it but we we clearly see patterns that seem to indicate order a very strong sense of order in the universe like bad deeds can't lead to happiness or bad you know bad intentions can't lead to happiness bad mind states can't lead to happiness good mind states can't lead to suffering and so on. Your mind becomes defiled, becomes sullied when you do bad deeds. Your mind becomes bright and pure when you do good deeds. That deeds are habit-forming, that those habits affect your, your mind, your body, the world around you. So, we don't really, we, we kind of disregard the idea of chance. We don't believe in death is another important one. It's important because people always give this charge of how can you believe in life after death? Well, easy, you just stop believing in death. Very important, you see, because when people say, well, what, you don't believe the body dies? I don't believe in the body. You see? The body doesn't exist. What exists is experience. Sit in meditation for a while, the body will disappear. And people say, oh, but that's just your experience. Well, yeah. You're starting to get the point that all there is is experience. The body is just a conjecture. You believe it exists. It could be you could be in the matrix, right? This is also how you get around this idea. Could we? How do you know we're not just in the matrix? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether we are just in the matrix. It's all the same. How do you know you're not dreaming? It doesn't matter. In the end, there's only seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, or thinking. So the idea of death presupposes the idea of a body that is going to die. It presupposes the idea of the brain that stops working. None of these things exist. It's certainly possible that at the moment of death we all cease to exist, but we have no reason to believe it, that that happens. 
we see experience continuing on moment by moment by moment. And unless we come to understand rea how these moments work very, very clearly, we have no reason to believe that it might cease for any reason. Now the key is that the Buddha, and this is something that we could believe, but again we shouldn't believe, we should try to find out for ourselves. We, we tend to accept, or no, we don't accept, but we appreciate the Buddha's statement that there is a way to become free from experience, and that's by becoming free from craving. And so we, we take this as a theory, let's put it that way. This is a hypothesis, a theory that the Buddha had, and this is the point. When someone realizes the truth of the Buddha's theory, and they realize Nibbana, which is the true freedom from, from the arisen phenomena, then they, they, they have what you might call faith, but it's not no longer, because it's no longer blind faith. So this is, the point is that you work you t test the Buddha's hypothesis and you become sure of it only once you've realized it for yourself. You don't ever believe it blindly. That would be useless. Because believing things, as scientists are, are so apt at saying, believing things stops you from investigating them. Okay, I believe in Nibbana. I'm a good Buddhist. You think that's going to help you realize Nibbana? Not at all. Until you are objective about it and test it out objectively, your belief's not going to help you one bit. In fact, an, an open mind will help you much more when you say, okay, let's prove it. Does Nibbana really exist? So you see how this is in, in Buddhist countries. Everyone believes in Nibbana, but how many people realize that? You see? Oh, yes, well, in Buddhism we believe that Nirvana does nothing for anyone, really. People still running after material, materials, materialism? No. Doesn't do us any good to agree with the Buddha. This is very important because view, right? It, belief is, is the same, another translation for ditti. Ditti, which means view. We should give up all views. The only view that we should have is in line with reality, in line with experience, in line with observation. What is suffer and and not only in line with observation, but what is useful? You see, so the Buddha focused in on what is true and what is useful, because he said there are many truths that he doesn't teach, and why he doesn't teach them? Because they're useless. Doesn't matter if you know whether if you're sure whether Australia exists or not not going to free you from suffering. But what does matter, what is true and what is useful, the Four Noble Truths. This is the first discourse. So what all Buddhists should come to believe through their practice, they believe not blindly, but come to believe, I don't even know if that's the right word, come to know for themselves, are the Four Noble Truths come to understand suffering. This is, should be known thoroughly. Should be known completely or fully. The truth of suffering, that the five aggregates are suffering. 
or unsatisfying. That means all of experience is unsatisfying. The six senses are unsatisfying. Why? Because they're on fire. They're un they're on fire. You see, this is the thing about fire. It's not it's not painful. So we say dukkha suffering. Everything is suffering. It didn't really mean that everything is suffering. It meant everything is just like fire. It's gonna hurt like heck if you if you if you grab onto it. Fire is not harmful if you don't grab onto it, right? Neither are the aggregates. Neither is experience, unless you grab and cling and force and uh, fudge and try to build up and set up an experience that is permanent, pleasant, and controllable. So we and we believe in the second noble truth, or or. We don't have to believe so much. We come to be free from the second noble truth. We destroy the second noble truth, the craving. We believe as Buddhists that craving is the cause for suffering or, or, or thirst is the cause for suffering because it creates stress and, and it causes you to cling to things that are on fire. Um, we believe that and the cessation of suffering is caused by the cessation of craving. What an obvious thing, no? If you believe the second noble truth, you also believe the third one. These, see, these you could say these are beliefs. If if you have these beliefs, they're not difficult to understand. And in fact, this is kind of where it kind of becomes a belief only in the sense of "I believe you." That's a you know, it's a reason to believe someone when they say, "Come practice this." Why should I practice this? Well, because you know, craving is the cause for suffering and this practice, the fourth noble truth this practice allows you to become free from craving it's not difficult, it's not really dogma you see it's not like worship this and you'll go to heaven which is very difficult to understand in fact some would say impossible but to say that looking clearly at things seeing things as they are will cause you to give up partiality Towards them is actually a very easy thing to explain, which is basically the Four Noble Truths. If you look closely, you're going to see things objectively. If you see things objectively, you're no longer to be going to become. You're no longer going to be subjective. If you're no longer subjective, you won't. Uh, you won't mistake things for for what they're not. You won't cling to them when they're bound to disappear. Very simple teaching, no? Very straightforward, easy to believe. And I say, okay, well that sounds sensible, makes sense, makes me want to practice it. So in this sense, belief can be useful, and, and it's a warning to us that our belief should dictate our practice, um, should lead us to practice, rather than stop us from practicing, or be a substitute for practice. That's the point. So we 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 don't have it, it's not really belief is not really the right word because we wouldn't want to say that our practice is based on some blind faith. But when someone convinces you that the pra that a certain practice is worth practicing, you you believe them. That's the only reason why you practice it. You say, "Hmm, that makes sense." And it's not quite belief, but it's kind of like. Um, confidence in the person, confidence in what they say. 
Like if someone, if I want to build a house and someone explains to me in very good terms, very gives me good instructions on how to build a house, I, I have confidence in their ability to teach me the right way to build a house because they have reasons and and explanations and so on. So, what do Buddhists believe? Absolutely nothing. That's one good answer. And a very important thing, as I've been having conversations with people who someone was asking me, what do you believe? I'm trying to, I'm trying, I'm having trouble figuring out what you believe. I said, well, it's probably because I believe so very little. <laughs> it's, it's, it kind of, you, you know, you kind of feel like you're being dishonest because you keep avoiding, no, I don't believe that, I don't believe this. Well, what do you believe? Absolutely nothing. Okay, so that's the talk for tonight. Thanks for listening. Now we'll do meditation. <laughs>